The sermon text is from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to, be, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is God's word. Amen. You can be seated. Preschoolers, y'all can be dismissed to your class. You can head back toward those back doors. Teachers will be there to take you on. If you're staying in the room with us, we we'll invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn to Titus. Titus, we're in chapter 3. Had a five-week series here. We've got this week and next week, and then Advent begins. But we are still in the, the letter that Paul wrote to Titus. It comes toward the end of the New Testament. Make sure you turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, look off someone who's close to you. I'd prefer you to be able to look that way. If you don't have someone close to you that has a Bible, then both of you uh, probably have smartphones, and you can pull that out and pull out a Bible app. And if all else fails, then you can move rows, and you can find someone else who has a Bible. You can raise your hand and say, hey, someone... No, you don't have to do all that. We will have it on the screens here, but uh, instead of relying on the screens, it would be really good if you could have uh, God's Word, this text, right in front of you. Because every single week, we print sermon notes, Um, And and we want them to be helpful to you, to guide you through the sermon. What we want, anyone who stands in this pulpit, what we want is not for you to get the sermon. We want you to get the scriptures. We want you to immerse yourself in God's word because that is where power for godliness is found, not in any particular point that I make. Um, So make sure you have God's word in front of you. We are in Titus 3. Um, Now, in case you haven't noticed, in all the time that you've known me, uh, my areas of expertise are limited to basically two areas, and one of them is, is a little wobbly, you know, anyway. You know, hopefully I'll continue to grow in it. Bible, you know, hopefully I'll continue to grow in, in that area of expertise, if you could call it that. And basketball, all right? And that's it, okay? That's all I know about. Anything else in my life, I have to call someone else. I need help with it. I, I'm not a jack-of-all-trades. I have a cousin who can do just about anything pretty well. And I'm not like that at all. I, I, two things I know really well. Everything else, I'm Googling. I'm calling someone. I need some help. Um, I, I don't know. Blame my raising. When you grow up in Kentucky, you're an expert in one of three things. Basketball, horses, or does anyone know the third one? Bourbon. Yeah, that's right. It's bourbon. So that's the third one. So, you know, it could have been bourbon that I was an expert. It could have been horse. It was basketball. That's the one I got. It's just my family, the way it is. Um, I thankfully also got a little Bible in there too. Uh, but all that to say, a quick basketball lesson for you this morning. All right, are we ready? I know James especially, he asked me to do this. 
He said, please, more sports and uh, illustrations. I don't get enough of that uh, from you. Um, Yeah, it was him. So just blame James for this. Um, One of the most important skills that you can develop as a basketball player, and I know we have aspiring basketball players here, uh, and you need to know this, is to have really good court awareness. It's called court awareness. By the way, if you didn't know, basketball is typically played on a hardwood court, a floor. Um, There's a round ball. Um, You should just Google it later. Um, But... On the, in, on the court, there's offense and there's defense. And the, one of the most basic skills you have to learn is where stuff is, where you are on the floor in relation to other people. Do we, does our team have the ball? I remember Erica, you know, even though we got married and I was obsessed with basketball, she was a cheerleader, by the way. She was never exactly sure who was on offense and defense until we started dating. And then, then we had to clear, clear some of that up. But if you're on the court, you have to be aware of your surroundings. If you're on defense, you have to know where your man is the person that you're guarding and make sure that you are keeping yourself between that person and the basket. You, ha- you have to know where, where they are. You have to know when a screen is coming and you're about to get hit by it. You, you have to be so aware on the floor of your surroundings. And on offense, you have to be aware of where the ball is. Who has the ball? Where am I supposed to be? You have to be aware of when to cut and when to move. You have to be aware of the clock, how much time is, is left in this quarter or in this game. There's so much that just boils down to basic awareness. Um, it is equally important for Christians to have awareness of our surroundings. Awareness of our surroundings. We, we need to properly orient ourselves in the life of the church and in the world. And that's what Paul has been giving us here. In Titus 2, Paul has been giving us good church awareness. We learned about the impact that we can have on other people, the characteristics that we need to embody in order to disciple one another toward godliness. Here in Titus 3, as as Reed just read for us, we could say that Paul is giving us world awareness. He's showing us how we should orient ourselves in the world, in our various relationships with unbelievers. Now that is an important consideration. That's important to think about. How should Christians live in an unchristian world? What should our orientation, our disposition be toward unbelievers? When's the last time you thought about it? Should, should we engage? Should we engage with our culture? Should we engage with, with unbelievers in our lives? Or should we withdraw and isolate ourselves from them what should our relationships with unbelievers look like writing to new believers new believers these these christians on the island of crete paul is writing this letter to titus and he's saying go and do this in these churches he's, he's writing in the context of new believers who are immersed in a godless culture immersed in it the apostle paul calls these young churches to live by good works. Live by good works. Good works is, you could even say, maybe the theme of his letter to Titus. It shows up a number of times twice in our passage today, and then in the verse right before the one that Reed read, we we find it again. It is all over the place here. Paul is saying, orient yourself in this world in such a way that you live a life of good works. Good works that are rooted in God's grace. Good works that are for the good of others and the glory of God. 
We've been talking about what makes the church beautiful. One of the things that makes the church beautiful is when her members are known for their good works. And his argument unfolds in three steps. First, there's a call to good works. He shows us how we should live. Second, there's a motivation for good works. He, he tells us why we should live that way. And then finally, there's an effect that our good works have. What happens when we live a life devoted to good works? Let's look at each of these. Uh, let's begin with Paul's argument that Christians should live their lives by good works, this call to good works. If you, if you ever want to know, if you ever want to know how to live as a Christian in a godless culture, Paul tells you right here in verse 1, remind them to be ready for every good work. Um, a, a parallel verse actually bookends this section of Scripture in verse 8, where Paul says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, being a Christian in first century Crete would not have been easy. Um, th these are first generation Christians. They, they, they are brand new. It's, it's, not even, it's not even the same as being a Christian in, you know, a place maybe like Portland or Seattle, or you, you think of a place like that where Christianity isn't as prominent. It's, it's not like that. This is, there's never been a Christian before ever here. They've never even heard of it, and here they are. And these new believers are being asked to radically transform the way that they had related to everything and everyone around them. An entirely new cultural code has been written by the gospel of Jesus Christ in which they have just believed. So discerning how to speak and how to move in a culture like Crete would have been a very natural concern. Paul wants these new believers to see that they are not just a new community meant to now isolate from the world. Hey, something new has been created. We've carved you out. So have nothing to do with these unbelievers anymore. Have nothing to do with any of these people. Instead, just isolate yourselves together, withdraw, create your own society, and I will be your God and you will be my people. That, that's, that's, not, that's not what's in view here. They are a new humanity, but they are a new humanity meant to glorify God in the world, primarily by extending his goodness to the unbelieving world around them. Devote yourself to good works. Be ready at any given moment for every good work. This is what Paul's saying. Do good. Pursue good. Call for the good in your workplace, in the public square, on social media, in your neighborhood. Live, as we talk about here at Trace, live according to the gospel's culture. Countless applications that we could walk through. Um, but we need to see at the beginning, our general disposition, or maybe we could say our mission, in and to a godless culture, is to be ready for good works, to devote ourselves to them. Now Paul, as he is outlining this argument, he focuses on two different spheres of life in which we should be ready for every good work. He says, in relation to governing authorities, be ready for every good work. In relation to everyone else, be ready for every good work. So you've got the government, and then you have everyone else. These, these are the two spheres that he gives us. So let's, let's look at each of these. The first thing that Paul says is remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be ready for every good work in relation to the government. Now the idea here 
Um, I was talking to somebody this week, and I said, hey, you know, hey, preaching this passage, and I read it, and they said, oh, like, we're supposed to, like, you know, uh, respect the speed limit and stuff. Like, I guess, is that, what, is that what that means? I need to make sure I drive the speed limit. And I was like, I mean, you know, probably, you know, just as a general rule, it's, it's a good idea. But it's, it's a good question. Like, what, what is in view here? What is, what is Paul talking about? Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Well, the idea here is actually really simple. It's that Christians should be compliant. Christians should be compliant, and they should be contributing members of society. Paul fully expects the Cretan Christians to continue participating in Cretan society, only now in a whole new way. So, so Paul begins with, with this, this uh, description of a Christian's relationship to the state, and he does. And it seemed odd to me. Because he has, he has this description next of, hey, now you need to relate to everybody else in this way. Why put a focus on respecting, honoring, submitting to governing authorities, to rulers and authorities? Well, it was a pressing issue in Crete. It was, it was important for the, the initial context. So Crete was this island that had been conquered by the Roman Empire in 67 BC. The history on that is really clear. And since that point... They had continuously been restless under Roman rule. They were restless the entire time. Um, The people in Crete, a lot of them, uh, were involved in insurrections, attempts to overthrow the the local rulers and authorities associated with the, uh, the Roman Empire. And so submission... And obedience to rulers and authorities was not not natural to them. Now, on top of this, on top of this, for Christians, what do we believe? Is Caesar Lord? Caesar is not Lord. Who is Lord? Jesus. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And this is brand new for them. So think about the temptation that would have been at the disposal of the Cretan Christians, already prone to insubordination, to Christianize their desire for insurrection. Can't you hear it? Let's overthrow the state for Jesus, you know? They just Christianize the whole movement. It's like, yeah, let's keep, let's, let's overthrow them. They shouldn't have power over us. Let's go get them. But now we're doing it in the name of Jesus because he is Lord and not Caesar. That, that would have been the temptation. Paul's instruction here is actually pretty groundbreaking. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Jesus alone is worthy of our unconditional allegiance. And when we are forced with the choice to either submit to the state or submit to Jesus, submission to Jesus takes priority every single time. So, you know, there may be times when we are forced to rebel against our rulers and authorities if obeying them would require us to disobey Jesus. If you need a historical example of that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrestled with his ethical obligation um, as a Christian living in Nazi Germany. I mean, he constantly wrestled with that. He actually ultimately chose to participate in an assassination attempt uh, uh, against Hitler. Um, But it wasn't something that he relished. It wasn't something that he, uh, uh, it wasn't a decision that he arrived at uh, lightly. Now, the point that Paul's making here is that our general disposition and our desire toward our governing bodies and authorities should be one of submission, regardless of whether we think that these rulers should be in power or not, and regardless of whether they share our worldview or not. The testimony of Scripture is that our governing authorities should receive our respect. 
So, putting situations where disobedience to, or sorry, putting situations where obedience to worldly rulers would require us to disobey God if we put that situation aside, the overall picture of the Bible is that the Bible will not allow the presence of bad or immoral or wicked authorities or unreasonable, inconvenient laws to lessen our obligation to submit to rulers. So here's an example. Our church cannot refuse to comply with city codes just because we don't like the mayor. That's not a statement of whether we like the mayor or not, by the way. Just uh, want to clarify that. Um, but our opinion is irrelevant. Um, we have to comply with the IRS. We don't really like that a lot of times as individuals or, or as a church. But we do it not just to stay out of trouble with the IRS. Christianity demands it. The word of God dictates that we submit to rulers and authorities. Paul is calling us, do you see it? He's calling us to be ideal citizens. Be an ideal citizen wherever you live, whoever is in power. And you may think this is really difficult. You may especially think it's difficult when certain political parties have power or certain rulers win ele- or certain you know, political leaders win elections. It's like, man, I don't want to do that. That is not my governor. That is not my president. I don't want to do anything this guy says. Are you kidding me? No respect whatsoever. And you think it's difficult. Okay, Paul doesn't understand how bad it is now. Do you understand who was in power when he wrote this? This is the time of Caesars. This is the time of occupational armies. This was the time of, of Colosseums. And Paul says, submit to the rulers and authorities. If Cretan Christians were expected to submit to Rome, then we must see that we are expected to submit to our governing leaders too. It extends to a lot of different areas. How we vote the ethics that we use in in political discourse, uh, the laws that we obey, the legislation that we strive for, the language that we use in in our discussions of governmental issues and leaders, um, whether it's with friends or family or in the context of the local church. All of those areas are affected by Paul's instruction to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Um, But... It's not just the government um, that, that Paul has instructions for us in to how we should relate. He also says, be ready for every good work in relation to everyone else. I want you to begin with me in verse 2, uh, picking up from verse 1. Remind them, verse 2, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Our good works toward unbelievers are given shape here as Paul outlines four attitudes and actions that we must show toward not just the people that we like, not just other believers, but everybody in the community. Two of them are negatively stated and two of them are positively stated. Let's look at the negative ones first. First, speak evil of no one. And by the way, uh, whenever you have a list like this in Scripture, and, and Titus is full of lists, it's so easy to gloss over them. It's so easy to just brush right past them. Because here's what you do when you read it. You say, so, okay, speak evil of no one, 
uh, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy, and then you may do something like, what does he mean, show perfect courtesy? And you go off on that, and you've already left the other three behind. We need to let these bake a little bit. It's real short, it's real simple. Here's the command. Speak evil of no one. To speak evil, to slander, to revile, to defame. Christians must not speak evil of anyone. Not not even unbelieving neighbors, um, unethical bosses, whatever the case is. Speak evil of no one. Gossip and slander. They're, they are, I mean, they are the definition of second nature to us. And maybe I'm just, you know, showing you my hand. It's easy for me to do. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. It's so easy. If, if Erica and I go out somewhere and we're hanging out with people, you get in the car, first thing. Did, what, what, it's gossip begins so innocently. So, so, so quickly, so easily, it's natural, you want to do it. Now put that in the context of somebody who's wicked or evil or, or an unbeliever or someone whose lifestyle is, is just so antithetical to, to what the Bible lays out for, for humanity and how easy it would be to speak evil of them. I'm not going to complicate it for you. I'm not going to complicate what Paul makes simple. Don't do that. Speak evil of no one. How often are we guilty of this? Second, avoid quarreling. So here's another negatively stated expectation. Avoid quarreling. It literally means be without battle. That's what it literally means. It describes a person who is disinclined to fight. They are not contentious. Listen, this, is, this one's really hard, um, especially if you work with unbelievers, uh, people who don't share a Christian worldview. Uh, it, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, conversations come up and, and, you know, based on the things that you believe or the way that you want to orient your life and live, it just clashes sometimes with people who have different values uh, and every single conversation could turn into an argument. And I just find it so interesting here that, Paul is saying to these newly converted Christians in Crete, this infamously immoral island, uh, and he says, hey, avoid quarreling. Are you kidding me? How many quarrels, how many arguments, how many debates that these early Christians could have entered into with their non-believing friends and neighbors? Paul's saying don't be argumentative with your unbelieving neighbors, or anyone for that matter. You don't have to push back on every single thing that a person says. Now, I used to think that this was just a social skill, you know, social skill of just how to get along with people. Some people just, it doesn't come natural to to just get along, you know, and you have to just push back on everything or everything has to turn into a debate. And to you, it's just, hey, we had a great conversation there. And the other person's just exhausted over it. And I was like, oh, I think it's just a social skill that everybody has to develop. But Paul helps me see that it's also a spiritual skill. Believers are expected to live peaceably with all people. 
You're expected as a Christian, this is a Christian duty. Just get along. Just get along with people. So here's something to take away from it. Don't be known as the one at work or in your neighborhood or in your friend group who is always picking fights or who is always arguing, who is constantly pushing back. Our commentary on social issues, on everything, it is not required as often as we think it is. It's just not. And social media makes this so much worse because it's, you get on it and in 10 seconds you've seen 50 different people's opinions on things. And it just riles you up. I, listen, I, I, was, I was really struggling with it. I had to get rid of Twitter. I have some social media, but I had, to, I had to get away from it because it was killing me inside. Seeing all the different things, and I wanted to just push back on everything all the time. It's not, it's not helpful. Now look, I'm also not saying that you should just be a doormat to people at work who are not believers and who are just saying stuff and it's just eating you alive inside. Like, you don't have to be a doormat. You don't have to be a compromiser either. Somebody says something that's blasphemous or just obviously not true and you feel an urge, hey, this is a good time for us to have a conversation about this, this, this claim that they're making. Like, don't, don't then turn to Titus and say, ah, I've got to avoid quarreling though. I, so, like, use this as a way to never witness to someone about Jesus. Like, that's, that's not what we're, we're calling for here. It just makes a ton of sense. I hang out with a lot of unbelievers. I, I, some of them are friends. Some of them are not friends. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, acquaintances, you might, you might say. Um, but if I wanted to, every single day, most of my day could be just filled with just argument after argument after argument. Because there's so much to argue about. You know, people who don't share your belief system. Don't be known for that. There are times that you do defend the faith. There are times that you do speak the truth. And there are other times you just get along. And you don't have to compromise to do that. There's, there's, it doesn't require you to. How do you do it? Well, let's look at his third instruction here. Now we have the positive ones. He says, be gentle. And then the second one is show perfect courtesy. To be gentle in this context refers to one who is in, not insisting necessarily on every letter of the law um, or, or custom. It's a person who is able to yield, a person who is kind, a person who is tolerant. That, that gets at the definition of, of the word gentle. A person who we might could say is gracious and forbearing. The gentle person is not one who just, you know, acts like sin is not a thing, and just at all costs gets along with people all the time. But a gentle person does avoid a judgmental attitude toward sinners. Gentleness toward unbelievers. It's not a compromise of righteousness. It's not a call to move the goalposts for certain people when it comes to biblical truth. But gentleness toward unbelievers is about our disposition toward them, our heart toward them. Gentleness means that we treat people with patience. We are long-suffering in our relationships. And you, you may have an unbelieving friend. This is a small example. An unbelieving friend who uses crude language um, frequently. Now, gentleness does not mean that you never call attention to the way a person speaks. And gentleness does not mean that you approve of, of everything that that person says. 
Gentleness means in that context that you are not required to always call attention to the way that they speak. Always, all the time. It's like, oh, listen, that is unbiblical. I have to tell them it's unbiblical every single time. No, that gentleness allows you to love a person and be patient with them. And if you struggle with that concept, like, well, I guess we're just all going to be compromisers now, just letting anything go. Anything goes in our relationships now. No, that's, I want you to think about how forbearing, how forbearing, how long-suffering God has been with us. And how long we went just blaspheming his name and not even really realizing that we're doing it. And yet he did not call down fire from heaven. His patience, his long-suffering, this is what we're called to embody. Fourth, show perfect courtesy. Now, to show perfect courtesy uh, essentially means don't be too impressed with yourself. Uh, it, it, it's a call to humility. Um, it's, it's a person who's looking to the interests of other people and putting them before their own interests. Humility is, is often at play here. So it sort of functions as a contrast to quarreling. When you quarrel with someone, it's because you're sort of, you're getting into your own self-importance. My view has to be heard in this moment. I, I ha- they have to hear what I have to say about it because they need to see how wrong they are. Like at the heart of quarreling is this idea of self-importance. Courtesy is the opposite of that. So instead of always looking to argue with an unbelieving neighbor, you show them courtesy. You put their needs before yours. You're genuinely interested in their lives. I can't imagine a more powerful and effective witness than simple courtesy and gentleness. When a person knows that you genuinely care about them, the gospel conversations that you can have with them will clearly be coming from a place of love. You won't ever have to say to a person, when you're gentle with them and you're courteous to them, you will never have to say, now believe me, this is coming from a place of love. You'll never have to give that. They'll know it. They'll know it because they will know that you do genuinely care about them. This is how we should orient ourselves toward unbelievers. This is Paul's call to good works. Now, why should we do that? Um, what, what's our motivation for living a life of good works? Whether it's in the form of submission to governing authorities or it's in orienting ourselves toward our co-workers in love and gentleness and courtesy. Like, wh- Why should we care so much about good works? What motivates us to do it? Well, one simple reason. It's who we are. It's who we are. We have been made new. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus created a a new humanity that lives by the cultural rules of heaven. And this new humanity is marked by good works. Paul, in another place in Ephesians 2, he said it like this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created, we are recreated in Christ as a people. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are made new in him for the purpose of good works. It's who we are now. Now, here in Titus 3, that motivation is presented in two different ways. We should treat our unbelieving neighbors with grace and always be ready for every good work for two reasons. 
because of who we once were, so in light of who we now are, because of who we once were, and because of what God has done. This is huge. So in verse 3, Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's important that he puts it here, and you notice that transition word for. So he's essentially saying because, because we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves, because of of who we once were, in light of that, we should treat other people with gentleness. We should be ready for every good work. We, we can make a couple observations here. First, there should be a distinction between the way we live and the way unbelievers live. It's sort of assumed here, actually, by Paul. There, there should be a distinction in the way that you live your life and the way that unbelievers live. C.S. Lewis always struggled with this. He struggled with the fact that he would come into contact with many non-Christians, non-believers who were much more kind than his, his Christian friends. And it, it just shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. Um, there should be a distinction. There's an indirect important implication here in verse 3. The only way for us to benefit from this reminder, the only way to benefit from it, that we were once just like the unbelievers in our community, is that we're actually different now. That's the only way to benefit from it. Your life should look different from your unbelieving coworkers. Your life should look different than your unbelieving neighbors. And not in a weird way, in a godly way. When we live our lives in public, the culture of heaven should be colliding with the culture of the world. Paul says, we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, full of malice and envy. Once we were like that. So if your life is characterized by any of the things you find in that list, put them to death today because that is not who you are now in Jesus. Jesus died to make us new. We are new creations in him. Paul said at the end of Titus 2, he said, uh, Corey talked about it last week, Jesus gave himself, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We could say that good works has become a part of who we are. And so that should show up as a distinction from the way that a lot of unbelievers live. Now, second, second observation here. While there should be a distinction between the way we live and the way unbelievers live, there should be no distinction between the way we treat unbelievers and the way God treats us. No distinction. We all know the golden rule, right? What's the golden rule? Somebody loudly. What was that? I didn't hear it. Louder. Hey, there we go. Uh, somebody else said it too. Um, uh, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the golden rule. There is a gospel rule. A gospel rule. Treat others the way God has treated you. We have this tendency to view ourselves or to view other believers as more deserving of love and good works than unbelievers? Why would we treat enemies of God the same way that we would treat children of God? They don't deserve it. 
Do you notice what Paul's doing here? He's catching you with that Lee Corso. Not so fast, right? Catching you with that. Some of y'all relate to that. That's okay. Um, you have a coworker who's a walking example of foolishness and disobedience. He's utterly ignorant of the things of God. He's making life choices that oppose God's will. He's fo- he follows teaching that's leading him far from God. Don't speak evil of him. Do not speak evil of him. Do not quarrel with, avoid quarreling with him. Be gentle, show courtesy. Why? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and led astray. Yet God treated us with gentleness and mercy. You have a neighbor who's given over to worldly passions and desires. You have a neighbor who is full of malice and envy. Maybe they're given over to greed. They just can never have enough. Maybe they're given over to sexual indulgence. Or they just have burning desires for things that God forbids. Maybe they have a habit of slandering others, envying others. And you just want to roll your eyes. Do not speak evil of them. Avoid quarreling with them. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy. Why? We ourselves were once slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy, hating one another. Yet God treated us with love and grace. So we devote ourselves to good works toward unbelievers because in part we were just like them. There's a second motivation. Not just who we once were, but also what God has done. Our motivation for good works in the world isn't just coming from this humble realization that we're by nature no different than anyone else. Our motivation for good works is also rooted in something that God has done. If there was ever a passage of scripture worth committing to memory, it is Titus 3, 4 through 7. Titus 3, 4 through memorize this passage. To make it your goal, by the end of the year, you have Titus 3, 4 through 7 Memorize. It is a gloriously rich exposition of what we call here gospel doctrine. We can't, I can't do it justice this morning, but we are going to walk through it. It is phenomenal. So we're going to ask three questions that this passage answers. First, what did God do? What did God do? Well, here we see it. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. What did God do? His goodness and loving kindness appeared. He saved us. Second question, how did God do it? How did he do it? Well, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's how he did it. He saved us. How? Not because of our works, but because of his mercy. Because of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Finally, why? Why did he do it? So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Why? So that you can become heirs of of God, so that you can have eternal life. 
rooted in your justification. Now, a couple, couple really important observations here. The reason, why, why, why should I pursue good works in my life? Why do that? Well, because of what God has done, he has saved you. And here's, here's the observations. We don't devote ourselves to good works so that God might save us. We have to make this, this distinction. Because you might think that if our salvation depended on our good works, we'd be more likely to do them. Have you ever thought that before? Like, you know, I know we believe, we don't believe in works righteousness. We believe in justification by faith. Uh, we believe we're saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, but, you know, if we had to earn it, if, if the only way to be spared the, the torture of hell and to be given the blessing of heaven was to be good enough, wouldn't you think we'd be better? I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. Uh, it's tempting. In, in Tupelo schools, you know, they have this thing called positive office referrals. Positive office referrals. So it's, you know, they have the negative ones, obviously. <laughs> you get in trouble in class and you get an office referral. But they have positive ones as well, trying to, you know, incentivize the good behavior. It's like, hey, I saw you doing something really good. I'm going to, and they get a reward at the end. And we're tempted to think that that's how it works with God. But that is not the gospel. And salvation as a reward for good works isn't actually that great of an incentive. You see, because first, good works are cheapened if they are only done to earn something from God. Loving and serving others will not come from a place of genuine concern, genuine compassion, but personal incentive. And what God actually expects of us requires us to have hearts of genuine love and compassion for people. And, and second, good works is a way to earn from God is personally crushing. How exhausting it would be to wake up each morning knowing that our behavior that day will determine what God thinks of us and how God treats us, will determine our salvation. How could you ever possibly know that you have done enough good? No, no. We don't devote ourselves to good works so that God might save us. We devote ourselves to good works because God has saved us. The way we say it here is gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. That gospel rule, treat others the way that God has treated you. We do good works because God's goodness and loving kindness appeared. We could never summon God's goodness. We could never call down his loving kindness. We could never find it anywhere through a spiritual journey of any kind. God's goodness and his loving kindness appeared. It came down as he came down to dwell among us. Our only hope of salvation is that God would act first. We do good works because God saved us according to his mercy, not our works. When God appeared, he poured out his mercy, not his wrath. God chose in his goodness and in his loving kindness to not treat us how we deserve to be treated. Foolish, disobedient rebels who willingly enslaved ourselves to passions and pleasures that contradict God's will do not deserve goodness and kindness from God. But that's exactly what he gave us. It's exactly what we receive in Christ because we are saved according to his mercy. So we respond in kind. We do good works because God has saved us according to his mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does it look like for God to save us according to his mercy? The Holy Spirit washes our hearts clean and makes them brand new. He regenerates us. He renews us. Jesus says that we must be born again. The Spirit is the agent through whom we are born again. Through the saving work of God alone, we stand justified despite our former sin, and we stand in hope for future unending life. And the point here is that God saves sinners, and he gives them all of his own goodness. Not, not because they are good and deserve it. Not, not because they were lovable and he just had to have us. No. He saved us according to his own mercy. He loved us, he cared for us, he provided for us because of his own character, not ours. And that is our motivation, to devote ourselves to good works among our unbelieving neighbors. Show to them what you have been shown. Every day, strive to match your treatment of others with God's treatment of you. Finally, What effect does this have? So pursue good works, and he gave us the examples. We have the motivation of remembering who we once were and remembering what God has done. What effect does it have if you actually did start to intentionally live a life of good works and treating other people the way that God treats you? What would happen? Paul actually tells us in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Uh, So Paul breaks sort of from his teaching to, to emphasize the importance of what he's just said. He strongly insists that Titus teach all of what he said to the Cretan Christians. Why? So that Those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It is important that a connection between faith and works be seen and experienced. Faith leads to works. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. It is absolutely crucial for a Christian to maintain consistency between what we believe and what we do. Paul really wants to emphasize this. Actions and attitudes that confirm doctrines and beliefs, that is the foundation of a beautiful church. It's crucial to Paul's argument here. And we know this because Paul then comments, these things are excellent and profitable for people. That's the dual result of believers devoting themselves to good works. When we see an accurate picture of a person saved by God's grace, which is a person who is believing in God and doing good works, when that happens, Paul says, it's excellent. This is profitable for people. When you submit to rulers and authorities, when you refuse to speak evil of others and avoid quarrels and you're gentle and courteous, two things happen. God is glorified. People are profited. God is glorified. Faith that leads to good works, it reflects the power of God's grace in his people. And you've probably heard that and said that your whole life. Why should you do good in the world? To glorify God. Why should I treat this other person with mercy and kindness? To glorify God. You may not even realize what it means. Why is God glorified when you do something as simple as treat a coworker with gentleness? Well, doing good works like that, first of all, puts the character of God on display. And then second, doing good works is evidence of God's power in changing you. 
It's the evidence of the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When our lives are marked by good works, God is glorified. And second, people are profited. All people benefit when we devote ourselves to good works. All people. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Our neighbors, our co-workers, everyone in our city. When we are ideal citizens, when we treat others the way that God treats us, they are benefited by it. And this is just a reality we need to think about from time to time. Anywhere we are, a workplace, a neighborhood, a community, wherever you are, it should be a better place because we are there. Because we are the new humanity created in God's image. Because we are reflections of the very character of God himself. So think about that. Instead of, you know, having this attitude of, of grumbling, you know, when you go to work every day or you're in your friend group or you're in your neighborhood or wherever it is, what if, what if you just went in with this attitude of, this place should be better because I'm here? This is what it looks like for you to devote yourself to good works. Listen, we need to be aware of our surroundings. We do. We are exiles, a new humanity living in a society that is not committed to God's word and his will. But that does not mean that we should withdraw in fear or attack in anger. Instead, we should orient ourselves toward our unbelieving neighbors the way God orients himself toward us. We must pursue good works, remembering who we once were and who God has regenerated and renewed us to be in Jesus. These things are excellent, the fruit of a beautiful church.